designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tales behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. So just a heads up, this episode contains some explicit language, so if you have any little ones around, you may want to grab some headphones. Happy almost new year. I hope you've had and or having a great holiday season, depending upon when you're listening to this. This week's episode is an amazing conversation with the incredible Melissa Oftemauer. And for those of you who know me, you know that I often call someone a rock star when they do something cool. Like, oh, you're a rock star. That's great. Well, Melissa is a literal and legit rock star, so it was super fun to be able to talk with her, and she was so generous with her time that I didn't want to cut out too much of the conversation. So this episode is a little bit longer than most, but it's so good. And so let me get into her bio to give you a little bit more context on who she is. And so Melissa Optimauer is co-founder and director of Basilica Hudson. And from 1994 to 1999, she was a member and bass player of the alternative rock band Hole. And she is featured on the Grammy-nominated album Celebrity Skin. She joined the Smashing Pumpkins in 2000 for their Farewell World Tour. And she's also released two solo albums, Optimauer in 2004 and Out of Our Minds in 2010. The later project comprises an album, a comic book, and a short film. Her photographs have been exhibited internationally, including at the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, and have appeared in such publications as Spin, L, Nylon, and American Photo. She was born in Montreal, Canada, and raised with a fine arts education, focusing on music and photography. So yeah, legit rock star. Bonafides there. And so Melissa and I met on a New York preservation webinar that we did back in the spring of 2021. And then I fangirled a little bit because I was like, oh my gosh, she's a rock star. Uh, And then we reconnected in the summer to really 
talk more, get to know each other better, and have more of an in-depth conversation to learn more about the work that we're both doing. And so since this is our first real conversation, you'll hear more about both of our backgrounds. And then we have a good time interviewing each other because this conversation will also be featured on her podcast as well. I'll put links in the show notes to many things that we talk about. So be sure to check those out. And we cover so much ground in this conversation, including polite racism, gender roles, feminism, climate change, preservation, sustainability, music, and culture. We also talk about the inequities designed into the American system and cultural differences between the U.S. and Canada. We touch on growing up in the 90s and her experience seeing her bandmate Courtney Love get eviscerated in the press after Kurt Cobain committed suicide. We talk about the power of passion and music's ability to move the masses. And then we also end with where we think we are on the pendulum swing of progress and what our hopes are for the future. So this episode was so much fun to record and even re-listening to it as I was editing it. It's just such a great and powerful episode. I really hope that you enjoy it and take a lot of gems from it. This week's building spotlight is, of course, going to be Basilica Hudson. And that building was originally built in 1880 as a forge and foundry for steel railway wheels. It was later used as a glue factory and had a number of other uses throughout the life of the building before it was redeveloped by Melissa and her partner and the Basilica Hudson team. And remember to follow the podcast on Instagram so you'll be able to see images of the building highlights and get access to the Linktree site. Also, I recently set up a Patreon page, so if you enjoy the show, I'd love for you to support the show via a donation or leaving a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Well, that's all the updates I have for this week. This episode is longer than most, but it's so good. This episode is definitely road trip worthy as everyone is completing their holiday travels or getting back into the swing of the new year. And so I really hope you enjoy this episode as we cover the intersection of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TRPODCAST, as in Tangible Remnants Podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. And without further ado, let's get into the show. I'm actually writing my memoir right now. Oh, awesome. And I dive into the arrival of digital. And it's Ooh, like, okay. it's an interesting chapter for me, especially because I'm such an analog mm-hmm. Luddite that <laughs> reviewing when that was coming in, <laughs> I remember being terrified. Like, this is no good. This is not going to be good for music. It's not going to be good for humans. Anyway. Okay. Gotcha. So here we start. <laughs> Okay. Hi, cool. Nikita. I'm Hi, Melissa. Melissa. How are you? Yeah, very good. I uh, We're meeting for the second time on Zoom. This is a wonderful thing. One day we will meet in the flesh, but uh, right now you're in Baltimore, correct? So Bethesda, but close to Baltimore. Okay. Yeah. Bethesda. Oh, man. For a girl who grew up with a lisp, that is not good. <laughs> My lisp is gone, but that is a scary word. I'm in Hudson, New York. And uh, I really was taken with uh, with our the panel we spoke on the sustainable preservation panel in April uh, with the New York Preservation League. 
what you are doing with the future of preservation seems very exciting and and related in the micro specific projects that we have worked on in Hudson. So I, I'm glad that we followed up to to meet again, to actually get to know each other one-on-one as yes. opposed to being moderated by a few other people. And here we are. Exactly. And uh, so I was super excited also to meet you. So aside from the fangirling part of it, when it's like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, who's on the panel? <laughs> Amazing. Um, but then also it was... Uh, know, you know, because people, people may have been alive in the 90s, but may not have noticed <laughs> certain rock bands. So I'm very, I was very excited that but you But I did. mean, you know, Hole and the Smashing Pumpkins, it's kind of a big deal. Some, you know, cross some genres, it's I would fun. say. <laughs> Yes. Fair. Okay. Fair. Yes. Um, <laughs> Important at that moment for sure. Yes. Music lovers, without a doubt, you could. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, to introduce myself, I'm Nikita Reed. I am a preservation architect at Quinn Evans, and I started a podcast called Tangible Remnants last year because uh, I really wanted to somewhat process what was happening in 2020, as well as talk about the intersection of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. Because for me, I realized there's just not that many people that have this particular vantage point. And mm-hmm. so I get to just talk about a bunch of everything. And when I heard about what you were doing at Basilica Hudson and the additionally to the sustainable preservation, but then also kind of the connecting the music world to the building world to the tradespeople's blown away and needed to talk more. So I'm glad we're doing this. Yeah, I guess it's a similar creative instinct of wanting to build like uh, or encapsulate all of the things you love in one dome mm-hmm. if possible. Yeah, so it sounds like your podcast and obviously your podcast reflects what you do and where where you have grown right. as a professional doer, right? And then I'm sure in your personal world too, in your creative world. Um, did you grow up in that area in Maryland? Or so Northern Virginia, actually. Okay. And it's interesting because when I moved to, so Northern Virginia is like 30 minutes from Bethesda, Maryland. It's not far at all. Um, and actually maybe 15, depending upon what part of Virginia. But it's interesting, just the assumptions that Marylanders make about Virginians and Virginians make about Marylanders. Because when I told my family I was moving to Maryland, my mom was like, ugh. I was like, really, mom, the entire state? She was like, yeah. And I was like, whatever. And then when I met some neighbors in Maryland, I was talking to them, told them I was from Virginia. They're like, oh, like with the cows? I was like, listen, <laughs> there's more to Virginia than the cows. But it's just entertaining to Amazing. see the different misconceptions. Well, um, as a Canadian. So I grew up in Montreal. I live in the Hudson Valley now. And I, in my rock world moment, I live between New York and Los Angeles, which is where usually people like that live. But in my very own Hudson Valley backyard, I have a Virginia license plate from my one year that I lived in Virginia and I paid taxes in Virginia because my first love was from Virginia and from the DC rock world. And we decided to leave LA and I think maybe tried to keep a place in New York, but we had, we lived in Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And very not, that's the only other state in America that I am connected to other than Massachusetts where my mother grew up. But uh, Virginia was an unlikely pit stop. So, but I definitely had no time to know, uh, to pick up on any of the regional things, which I'm very tuned into in the Northeast. So I'm very aware of the like Western New York, Eastern New York, all those things. Yeah. And so I've only been to Hudson Valley once for a conference recently. And I was at, uh, I think, um, what's the, is it West Point up there? Oh yeah. Wait, recently as in not during uh, like COVID. 2019. 
so, right, so yeah. before the <laughs> before COVID, okay. yes, and um, the before yeah, times. Whoa, you went to West Point for a yeah for a preservation conference. conference. Yeah, um, is it a cool building? Actually, it was. It must be. Yeah, it really was, and but it was a little weird because I hadn't I hadn't been there before, and so kind of driving through the valley and trying to find the place at night was a little unnerving. But then mm-hmm. got there safely. It was fine. But I hadn't been there before. But it's beautiful. I didn't realize that there was mainly because there's the roads and the trees and I just didn't see that much of a population, if that makes sense. So I kind of thought it was just West Point and that was it. But then I was like, wait, there's all these other amazing places and people happening that I'm learning about more so from just doing more research on Basilica Hudson and what you're doing up there. So what got you to Hudson Valley? Yeah, well, so my husband was born and raised in lower Manhattan and I was born in Montreal. And when we fell in love, I had just finally returned to Canada after my USA rock experience. And I thought, well, I never need to do that again. I'll just live in Canada (laughs) as I was and return to a civilized society where people have health care and access to great education and variety of things like that. And um, I, within six months, fell love at first sight with a New Yorker, Tony Stone, my partner in Mm -hmm life and uh, my daughter river and uh, basilica hudson co-founder and i had not been in canada and long enough and definitely the world of music and art was still kind of pulling and calling and there is maybe for this podcast or later in the conversation of the, the canada usa thing is that i'm a real hybrid and i i see the pros and the cons and one of the pros of the U.S., but it's getting a little bit more crazy with the extreme divisive mm-hmm. anger, et cetera, happening now. But individuals in the USA are so powerfully enraged slash impassioned, you know, so the extreme passion of the U.S. is is quite mesmerizing. And although I had had quite a journey in that with a lot of um, the rock world, but Falling in love with Tony, I just thought, okay, well, I'm not moving back to New York. So if we, if I move back to the States, where are we going to be? And mm-hmm. he had gone to Bard College. He studied film. And Bard is a liberal arts college that I had never heard of. But now that I live in the Hudson Valley, it's, it's, it's the liberal anchor since for 100 years. I mean, it's an oh, amazing wow. historic um, liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. And um, in the first month we were together, he brought me upstate and the Hudson Valley, for those who have watched probably a lot of people listening to your podcast, how New York City was, you know, destroyed by um, developers and mm-hmm. um, uh, him growing up in lower Manhattan to two artist parents who had a rent controlled loft in Tribeca and watching all of their friends get priced out or kicked out. A lot of them moved upstate. So Hudson Tony's family had been coming to since the 80s, and it was the red light district crack capital of New York. It was one of the most dangerous little cities in upstate New York. And uh, he had been coming with the alternative artists that were being kicked out. And so, you know, when Hudson Valley anchored in Hudson's renaissance in the last 20 years, it really was antique dealers, artists, gays, freaks, you know, just Mm-hmm. The alternative populations that were being pushed out of lower Manhattan and, and obvious places in New York City. So he had been coming up for ages. So we, when we came into the valley, um, we went to visit his aunt who lives in Hudson, who's an artist who had bought a like 
totally defunct. You could buy a house, a historic house, like mm-hmm. a three hundred year old house, for one dollar for back taxes in nineteen ninety nine. Wow, that's how quickly this place, which is I don't know if you're following, that is the biggest in migration in mm-hmm. yeah in the U S. during COVID. So the, our zip code is filled of new millionaires and billionaires at this moment. And the housing market has gone nuts with the New York City expat. So, you know, I guess that's where I learned the hard lesson slowly of where the artists go, the money goes. And that was like kind of the, that's where we're at in the Hudson Valley. And that's sort of, but how I got here was seeing what the kind of next step for artistic New Yorkers were 20 years ago. And we got here 12 years ago. And when we got here, there was not one coffee shop, maybe one that kind of, you know, like a drip coffee shop, with doily, super cute, but there was nothing like there is now. It's insane. Gotcha. So we're in a whole different, you know, we didn't move. We're not living in the city we moved to, but we are doing a lot of work here and we're in an existential question of, you know, where's the future? <laughs> right. but, um, but that's how we got here. And, uh, and, and part of the appeal was that it's the geographical in between point Montreal and New York city. So it's straight up the 87 and mm-hmm. I can go home to my mother's house in four hours from where I'm sitting right now. So really it's very exciting. Yeah. Montreal is very close. No one ever knows that. I mean, I've anyone who's ever met me is basically, I mean, you're just cause you're a little more South. You don't, mm-hmm. but like anyone who's in New York state, who's not gone to the Europe of the North America, <laughs> but only four hours from where I am is missing out. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't realize it was that close either. I will also preface this with, I am not great at geography. So there's that, <laughs> but that is good to know. That's interesting. How is it that, so tell me in your, how did you get into, I, I guess it's a love of buildings and a love of, is it history that brought you into so, preservation? Like, no, it was more, it was kind of, it was, the buildings for sure, but the buildings and the people. And so when I was younger, um, my stepdad lived in Georgetown. And so we would go back from Northern Virginia to Georgetown. So I spent a lot of weekends um, in Georgetown. This was before my mom and my stepdad got married. So, you know, they were dating. We'd spend weekends in Georgetown and um, his condo. But like DC of the late 90s, late 80s, late 90s is very different than DC of today. Georgetown is very different. And so I remember being young and not understanding why I was seeing homeless people sleeping outside of vacant buildings and I was like you know there people need buildings buildings need people this seems like an easy solution I don't get it like why don't architects just fix it kind of thing um and so from a young age I've always had a very I've always been kind of obsessed with dilapidated buildings and then even when I was younger I used to visit a friend in Pittsburgh so taking the train from DC to Pittsburgh and going through towns that had dilapidated and kind of wondering what were the towns, what caused them to dilapidate, what would it take to make them, you know, be vibrant again. So just kind of always curious about existing structures. Uh, So for me, architecture and preservation have always gone hand in hand, but I didn't realize it at the time that they did. So when I went to architecture school, I kept thinking we were going to learn a lot about existing buildings and we didn't. Um, I did uh, study under some preservation architects when I was in college and that was great, but my architecture degree didn't set me up to be under to, rather to understand preservation. Uh, so when I went back to get my master's in preservation and then also a master's in architecture, that's kind of where I started seeing them come together more. Mm-hmm. But it was weird because I had colleagues in preservation who were like, oh, architects can't design, you know, Frank Lord Wright's buildings leaked. He was, you know, a famous architect of 20th century. And then my architecture colleagues were like, oh, well, preservationists just get in the way. They're the hysterical committee. They just want to stop progress. So there was just 
just kind of a like ships passing in the night because I was like architects don't you mm-hmm. want preservationists uh, to preserve your building in 50 years and preservationists don't you want mm-hmm. architects to keep designing so there's more things to preserve um, mm-hmm. so I've kind of always seen it as a both and and just really wanting it to be for the people and from a preservation standpoint I'm less interested in an old building because some dead old white person was there which often mm-hmm. was kind of what the preservation movie movement was in America for a while um, but more so because of the sustainability implications of not tearing down a building yep. and also making sure that the people of this current generation have buildings that they can use and care for and be housed in so it's like how do we actually use things from the past to support people of today and um, make sure that we're also leaving something for the future. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of been a, that continuum has been something I've been interested in. Super interesting. I mean, just that also says a lot about people who uh, grow, grow up in the East Northeast with the history of the, I mean, the whole East coast, of course, like new Mm -hmm. Orleans or something, but um, not all of the Northeast has that impressive, like Georgetown, just where you're feeling the scale of, conquering unfortunately mm-hmm. of of America and uh, growing up in Montreal there's a lot of from when you grow up in a city like that and you walk the streets and you you feel the the buildings telling you the story even as a young person and right. like what you're describing of the homeless people outside of the buildings or these mm-hmm. big beautiful dilapidated buildings that obviously cost the most money ever at that time and right. why do people change their consumer values and all of those mm-hmm. um, questions but that's definitely what attracted me to Hudson is I felt a different story but the same enchantment that I felt growing up in Montreal and Montreal is a very very old city which I'm sure you know and like old Montreal is like being in old Europe and it was well, similar to parts of um, places in DC but it's as I guess I'm going to say women of the 90s without even having to go. But I feel like in the 90s, a young woman, Mm -hmm. at least for my sake, I was trying to understand what had gone wrong, of course. You know, why are we, A, not empowered? (laughs) B, why are there so many disempowered people out Mm -hmm. there? And then who are these people who set up the system, right? And so when you see these gigantic buildings and – and in particular, when I moved to Hudson and we fell in love with Basilica, the 1880s former forge and foundry, classic Basilica structure looking factory. Mm-hmm. It was my first time I really thought about the industrialization of America, which, of course, I had understood. And I knew that even Y2K was the next digital and industrial revolution that was terrifying to me. And I could only imagine you know, and I probably did in a past life live at the turn of the last century mm-hmm. and feeling that industrial black smoke enter the landscapes and, and the nature scapes yeah. that to me instantly, when I arrived in Hudson and out of my 1850s home, saw the Basilica outside our back porch. Mm-hmm. It's like, what is that? And how did that happen? And why is it still standing? And right. what did they do in there? And what could we do to fix that problem? And for mm-hmm. us, it has been, you know, you're talking about the reclaiming and preserving and building and sustaining is that it's the reclaiming of a, a mistake that holds something great, like amazing engineering, amazing right. design, but the people and the plan, the mm-hmm. plan for the economy, the plan for energy, the way they treated people, not mm-hmm. a good time, but you could stop. T- you can use that t- time capsule and make up for their mm-hmm. sins by right. filling it with 
much better values and better actions. And that's definitely what for me and Basilica turned uh, 10 in 2020 and we're in a major deep dive review of, um, as I mentioned, Hudson's not the same as when we arrived here, there was no avant-garde drone music and independent documentary filmmakers coming up mm-hmm. to speak about. So we we anchored our programming on music and film and visual arts and performing, performing arts, but very avant-garde and not, you know, not a big audience, but exciting to do that exchange where you bring things you usually see in a big city right. to a small city. And in, in that moment, you're doing an exchange between the locals that might have never seen a strange mm-hmm. performance like that. <laughs> and then bringing uh, the audience and the artists that usually are in a big system city to a small quite honest, forgotten city. Now it is like reclaimed and exploding and terrifying in terms of how quickly it's being found and, Mm -hmm. and populated. And it's been very interesting being part of that decade and watching what happens when a neighborhood gets found. But at the time, my original commitment, similar to Tony growing up in lower Manhattan, when he was the only child in the neighborhood and his parents were Fit, fit, you know, putting plumbing in a gigantic 5,000 square foot factory that no one had ever lived in. Mm-hmm. And so both of us were fascinated by this idea of starting new in an old broken place. And it's not to say that there, there was no one in Hudson, but those who had left behind in Hudson mm-hmm. were not with not much future and not and living uh, most of which under the poverty line. And it was a question of how do you rebuild a little neighborhood in a little city, one building at a time. And that's sort of, I guess, similar to, to, I mean, you ended up going into architecture. So when you studied architecture, you were actually studying like building new buildings and then you found preservation through that. And then you're describing this kind of separation, which I can imagine like when even in the medical system, because I kind of think of architects, my brother is an architect, a very modern, he's, because I'm so old school, analog, love old buildings. He's always mad when I say modern. He's like, I am not a modern architect. I build new construction. I yep. like old things. But I'm always like, oh, he's a modern thing. They're all like modern and square, not no decorations. But um, but he he's a, he's actually worked on both projects with us. He's our nice. architect, not licensed in the U.S., so he okay. does the work with us, mm-hmm. and then we get a local um right. licensed one to stamp it. But uh, architects and medical, I think of those as very big professional professions. And Mm -hmm. as we all kind of wake up into the medical awareness of how terrible we've treated our bodies and how the government has allowed us to pollute our bodies endlessly Mm -hmm. is that the medical system has the same thing. Like the heart doctor doesn't talk to the brain doctor, doesn't talk to the back doctor. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And like our buildings are our bodies. There are manifested bodies. They for better, for worse, because they are, they are symbols that we, uh, we are no longer people of the woods. <laughs> we are people yep. of buildings. And and I wonder, do you think about, I mean, obviously growing up in that DC area and thinking about old buildings and thinking about repurposing them to serve all people, mm-hmm. where is your landscape of like, when you think off the grid, like for example, we have a cabin in Vermont off the grid that Tony's father hand built in 1969 just to always be able to have a place to unplug from what Mm -hmm. is the world of buildings and systems and how do you um i mean it it ties into green energy a little bit i'm just curious like you as a 
a professional construction building person, mm-hmm. they think about people of the woods and prior to buildings, like the history of architecture. Like, I mean, look how cool the primitive original buildings mm-hmm. were, teepees, these incredible, like, right. and then of course the pyramids and like, just like this idea of how people started to build construction. Mm-hmm. I'm so curious, like what your kind of timeline passion or describe your view of how buildings came to be. So that's such a fascinating question. I'm like, huh, wait a minute. Like, <laughs> Have you thought about that before? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure right. you've studied in architecture. Right. You must exactly. study history of buildings, yeah. right? Yeah, all yeah. of it. And so it's like thinking of like the history of architecture and just kind of how it all came together. But one of the things that I think I try to be careful to do is to not romanticize the past and to recognize that architects of any time period are using the tools that are innovative and, you know, of the day that's available to them. But I also think uh, in architecture, particularly the invention of the air conditioner fundamentally changed architecture because we no longer had to worry about, you know, overhangs, never didn't have to worry so much about passive cooling and ventilation, at least not natural ventilation, because we now had this machine that could do it for us. So we started looking at, well, how do we hermetically seal our buildings? How do we make windows with ribbon windows and don't worry so much about natural ventilation because we have this mechanical system that can do it for us. And we didn't have to worry about overhangs as much. So, you know, the big brownstones of New York that have lots of overhangs to keep water shedding off the building and away from the windows. We didn't worry about that so much as the form of the building started to change to respond to the systems. Um, So it's, I'm always fascinated to see kind of what was built when in a particular place, recognizing that technology has changed, will continue changing. But I don't know, I don't know that I have a favorite style of architecture per se. I often do wonder kind of more of like, particularly in America, like what was happening in the country when this building was built? Um, so like yeah. whenever, so I'm always curious about that. And so whenever I see different buildings or even different cornerstones, you know, like that's physically like laid into the building to say, you know, this building was built or this cornerstone was laid in 1870, whatever, 19, whatever. Um, so I'm always just kind of interested to see how different builders and developers and architects want to mark a particular moment in time with their building. So I guess I don't, think mm-hmm. about the uh, I guess I'm not thinking so much about time so much <laughs> right exactly <laughs> so it's more of just kind of, yeah being curious about so cool the, 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 the AC thing is mm-hmm. a fascinating thought because even just with our building the basilica that whole turret that was there was built so a factory could mm-hmm. have ventilation and right. I've never ever thought other than I assumed that high ceilings and things were mm-hmm. for circulation but I had never thought about that. And when you're describing that idea of natural coolings, uh, that kind of brings me, because I don't romanticize the past, but I'm very fascinated by mm-hmm. pre-technology yeah. worlds and how people were so amazing at yeah. doing anything without yep. the technology. So yeah. when it, like, for example, just how did they build the, the pyramids like that? Mm-hmm. Since I was the smallest person ever, just still I'm so blown away by right. the pyramid construction and in uh, the Mayans and just like mm-hmm. how on earth, I mean, I know how slaves and terrifying, right. but engineering wise yeah. is what I do not understand. Yeah. And I that, think. yeah, I hear that. And I feel the same way. Cause I mean, same way with um, thinking about like uh, tall windows in historic buildings, you know, before electricity, we need a more natural light in the building. So there were different, the building 
to have always been designed to accommodate technology. But I, the things that I think about in terms of how the world has changed based on different systems. So air conditioning being one in buildings, another one being the highway system through communities and how mm -hmm. the highway system in the U.S. destroyed so many different black communities and lower income communities because those developers didn't see a community there. They saw a slum and redlining and all those things. Yeah. Um, but then also thinking about the invention of, um, so the highways, which then also led to um, fast food and kind of the idea of fast food and drive-throughs and car culture. And so just thinking about what society, how different we would be if we actually didn't have some of those modern conveniences, but then also had some mm -hmm. unintended health consequences. And so it's kind of uh, the unintended consequences of progress are something I also think about quite often. That also leads to within climate, I believe, isn't coolant and refrigerators and AC one mm -hmm. of the most deadliest things we have. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is no question, especially in the USA, the biggest consumer culture in the world, that the conveniences mm -hmm. have destroyed the health and culture of mm -hmm. our society. And that also is reflected something I think about all the time, as well as the, the wealth gap and the rich and the poor and the, yeah. and the system, a country that has allowed yeah. these rich and this, this poverty mm -hmm. yeah. is beyond like, comparable. There's no other place you can yeah. compare it to. I'm from a country four hours away where right. there are fundamental things in place so mm -hmm. that no one can get that rich or that poor. You right. cannot. There is systems and banking rules and mm -hmm. uh, corporate rules. I mean, that don't allow you I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, people are finally, I feel like it's, I mean, I've been in, in and out of the U.S. for 20 plus years, but I feel like it's only been really since the most greedy, fake, wealthy person became president that anyone <laughs> is saying this. Right. I, my mother left the U.S. in 1969 because of those reasons. She was born mm -hmm. and raised in America, raised me explaining it is an unjust society. There was a war in Vietnam. There was a, a, a segregation of races. Mm -hmm. Like she left so quick and went to a civilized country. And I was raised very confused because I had a <laughs> dual citizenship and my favorite person was my grandfather in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. And he mm -hmm. was, you know, I knew there was political differences because mm -hmm. my mother explained he was a Republican and unacceptable, but he was the most gentle, wonderful man in my life. And I always felt like a loyalty also mm -hmm. to my mother's country that she left so angry and just like left a society, became a French Canadian and pretty much said, never go there. But I, I ended up getting like my first ticket out, <laughs> I ended up joining a rock band and, and coming to the US. But right. it was when I arrived, I mean, I obviously had been raised very aware, mm -hmm. but when I arrived in 1994 in the US joining rock bands, that were not yet millionaires. A lot of them went on, but they were just, it was the explosion of that nineties right. rock world. And the level of, well, two things, a, that no one had had good schooling. No one had been to a doctor. I, I couldn't yeah. even believe like, so nobody had security and these are mm -hmm. just people in rock bands. So artists, you know, usually come from more challenging mm -hmm. of upbringings. Um, but uh, the thing that shocked me the most was that nobody thought that was weird. Yeah. Like nobody thought it was strange. Yeah. That there was no, so I've spent the last, I spent 
20 years in this country explaining that, no, that is not right. No, it is not acceptable. We should not, you can't, ex- you don't get anything for your taxes. Yeah. You all, people want low taxes, but you don't get anything. What? Right. Yeah. So the, that system, I mean, we're way off of architecture, but we're way into people here, but it's the USA and the way the conveniences have mm-hmm. destroyed the lifestyle. That is like, what did you end up doing your, you did your master's, you said, mm-hmm. right? Did you do a, a they call them theses? Yep, I did. What, yep. what was it? Was it yep. touch it, on any of this? Because I love the connection of high highways to fast food. Yeah, yeah. so I went to uh, UPenn. And so it was interesting because for preservation, a thesis was mandatory. For architecture, it was a privilege. So I had to, com- had to compete to get into the architecture thesis program just so that I didn't end up having to do like an architectural studio, which is crazy time intensive on top of a preservation thesis, which is like a hundred plus page document, lots of research, all that. So I ended up picking a site in North Philadelphia that was a warehouse and looking at ways that we could use prefabrication technology to more quickly activate a historic building or not even actually an existing building. And I'm sorry, I'll nerd out a little bit from this. So at the time there was an existing building or historic tax credit, which was 10%. And so basically any structure that was placed in service before 1936 could get this automatic 10% tax credit. But there were some stipulations that like 75% of the interior walls had to remain in place, 50% of the exterior walls and all that kind of thing. So I found this existing building that met those criteria, And it was like, well, what if we designed it so you could take down a portion of the wall, insert these prefabricated modules to get people living in there faster while the whole rest of the area is being developed. So studying that because North Philadelphia, like many, um, many cities that are on the East Coast had heavily Black populations. And um, there was a lot of demolition of blight or what the city called blight, but which is really kind of going in and destroying portions of black neighborhoods. Uh, I think North Philadelphia is still the only city in America where the U.S. has actually bombed residents. Like, uh, I think it was 84. There was the, the oh, Philadelphia police like bombed, a, like dropped bombs from an airplane on this neighborhood. No way. Yeah. Um, and so style to get people. Yep. And it, they're they going after, um, it was, I want to say it was called the move, but it's like the only time that bombs have been dropped on U.S. citizens by the U.S. Um, and so because of that, yeah, it was the move bombing in Philadelphia. And so it was in 85. Uh, and so basically they were trying to root out this organization and it was uh, ended up killing about 11 people and raising some of the city blocks. And so in Philadelphia, it was a manufacturing hub. So there are lots of mills that were in different neighborhoods. And so basically there would be row houses built around these mills because people would w- live where they worked. But then as mills and industries changed and those buildings started becoming vacant, the area around the mills started becoming less desirable to live in, more vacant buildings, more dangerous and all that. So my thesis was around the idea that these mills used to be an anchor to the community. Then they went vacant and they became more like a bomb because people didn't want to live around them. So then how do we use architecture preservation to stitch these neighborhoods back together? What can we reuse in these historic buildings or existing buildings? Um, And so I make the distinction between existing and historic because not every existing building that's old enough to be historic is actually a certified historic building. So just anyways. And so I was kind of trying to look at that to get a sense of why does North Philadelphia look the way it does? And why was it 
allowed to deteriorate as it has, and then learning more about, oh, it's systemic and highways and funding suburbs and white flight and preventing Black Americans from living in the suburbs so that it became more housing segregation. Uh, so it's been a lot of recognizing that the system is working as designed, even though the designers um, did not have everyone's best interests in mind. And so it's that the oscillating between, oh, the system's broken, broken, and then the heartbreaking realization, oh, wait, it's working as it was designed. And mm-hmm. hence the inequities that we have and how do we kind of work through that? Uh, and so, yeah, it's been, so anyways, that was the thesis, but then skipping forward to kind of the podcast and 2020 and the awakening and all that. And so one of the things that you mentioned was the love for your grandfather and he was very gentle, but you re- recognized that there were different values and all that. And one of the things that I, I think a lot of Americans have a hard time recognizing is that racism and politeness aren't mutually exclusive because I have so many friends like, oh, that person can't be racist. He's a good person. It's like, there's a difference. Everyone, like we're indoctrinated in this whole white supremacy situation in the US. Mm -hmm. And so needing to separate the idea of being polite from being racist, from having Mm -hmm. different views. So it's just, it's having those types of conversations is something that I've been getting more comfortable doing. And even having conversations about race and preservation and architecture at my predominantly white firm that has 200 people and just this these are conversations that have not been had historically mm-hmm. at predominantly white institutions because it's been deemed impolite it's like yeah. everyone knows it happened but we don't talk about it or acknowledge it because oh it's an ugly part of the history that we're trying to deny actually happened yeah, yeah. well that's interesting because it's that i love your well, there's a couple of things. The difference between existing and historic mm-hmm. is a reflection of the system is working as design, not broken. Because right. I certainly have never said, in my mind, it's always been, this is a terrible system. This is right. clearly it was built to mm-hmm. not support people. This is not a good system. <laughs> right. Uh, right. But then, of course, and I'm not saying that Canada is perfect by any means, but it has a fundamental system that everyone gets a baseline of the same. So there's a more of a democratic spreading of, there's still an inequity, still racism, of course, everywhere, but there's like the system kind of protects at least a fundamental where the people are blind, like blinders are obviously everywhere. and, And it's obviously a very liberating moment for Americans to be able, and especially someone like you in your your 200 person firm that right. it must be incredibly liberating for you to feel like you could actually say that and it be part of if you're not I mean it's like a, such an exciting awakening for people to be able to speak about how bad the system is and that you cannot deny anymore right. I mean I just blanket it capitalism and I mean just like greed is just a terrible you know everything is the bottom line the dollar of the person who is trying to right. get ahead it's obviously much deeper grossness than that. But so tell me how you have in, in your, your, your thesis, your master, it sounds so cool. And that neighborhood would be very interesting to, to see today. Has it changed at all? So I haven't been back to that particular site. So let's see. My in-laws live in North Philly, so I've been to their portion of North Philly, but not the part of North Philly where I did the thesis. But um, we were actually there recently, and unfortunately, it's stagnated. And so mm-hmm. it's one of those things, the last time we, we drove up, I, 
I remember, and this was actually during COVID times when we were driving to visit in-laws, my husband and I, who my husband's also an architect. Um, and so we were talking about like, why does North Broad Street look like this? Who owns these buildings? Why are they being allowed to deteriorate like this? What's the plan for this area? And because it's one of those things where it was just, it was depressing and it was unfortunate. And it was one of those like moments of helplessness where it's like, seeing the problem but not having the the political power the the funds the vision the ownership all that stuff to like change it and so it was one of those things where it's like the more that i'm understanding the way that various systems have been designed and all that it's just more frustrating because it's like it doesn't have to be this way like it really doesn't have to be this hard for a particular subset of people if only the decision makers would stop making decisions that are basically condemning other people to um, such conditions. So it's one of those things where it's kind of like, I don't know, I, I remember when I was younger the, for a couple of different like games in elementary school or something, it'd be like, all right, here's, here's, here's a pie. Now cut it in half and you're going to give half to this person and you get to keep the other half. And like most kids, kids would try and be like, all right, well, I want to keep the bigger half. So they cut it in a little bit unjust ways. And then you try to go and give the smaller piece to someone else. And the teacher's like, actually, the piece you were going to give to that person, now you get to keep that for yourself and you give them the piece you were saving for yourself. So it almost seems like the people who are making the decisions aren't thinking that these will have impacts on them. And that's kind of a long way to say. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> getting, Isn't that a word called entitled? I you know? Remember, yes. <laughs> yeah, all of that. Uh, and so one of the things that I've been uh, researching more about in Baltimore particularly, and this kind of ties back to that level of inequity and accountability. Mm-hmm. And so um, there were a number of affordable housing projects that were built and they had a lot of lead paint in them. And a lot of the children who lived there got lead paint poisoning. And so there was a researcher who actually started tracking teenagers who were committing shootings in Baltimore. Mm. Where did they grow up? Where did they live? And he found that there was a correlation between these teenagers who lived in these housing projects that were exposed to lead poisoning. So it's like the recognition that an action that you take 10, 15 years ago could come back and haunt you because of, you know, trying to save a buck, not caring about who was living there and all that. And then that becomes more of a societal issue. So anyway, just random, random well, thoughts. Well, and that's, that's not random because that is climate change. And that yeah. is, you know, and that, there's that. Oh, you yeah. don't think that you're going to be affected mm-hmm. when the planet collapses and right. migration mm-hmm. and you can't, I mean, even if you can hide in a bunker, it's not going right. to, it's either going to be too hot to live or there'll be no water. Yeah, I mean, exactly. those are very basic. Yes. And that's, that is unfortunately when you when you look at that exact lead paint mm-hmm. and individuals, this is that moment where we hope that right. we could look holistically of as us all being one ecosystem and that if someone right. like that, if that's happening next door, mm-hmm. it will happen to you at some point um, right. in some other way. And I mean, I guess uh, without going into like the full because I mean obviously, you know, when we, so when we met on the sustainable preservation, uh, there was definitely a lot of uh, focus on obviously reclaiming is just like recycling. So right. we know reusing is a green energy and mm-hmm. in training a new generation uh, and existing generations of builders and workers to think about regenerative energy and not just mm-hmm. bringing in fossil fuel forever. Now that's where, where we touched um, other than just like the 
excitement of connecting people and music right. and art and how do you wake people up to these because you know the real question which i'm always going to come back to to your system working no the 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 existing no i took notes the one with the conveniences oh yeah the unintended consequences of progress that one thank you very much unintended Mm -hmm. consequences is that the lazy disconnected dumb of so many people who are not questioning the system and who are not connecting the dots that right your car you are driving does affect the air somebody else is breathing. And at the end of the day, everyone's going to pay for these problems. It's just a matter of when. Right, and then exactly. it's also the wake up of how selfish people can be. <laughs> <laughs> just like, as long as I'm okay, right. someone else will take care of that. Right. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know how, how can we turn that into a constructive moment of conversation <laughs> about, about what it is that you are doing? Yeah. Maybe you should, so I think it's kind of like getting out of silos because for instance, it yes. used to drive me crazy whenever I meet someone who says that, oh, if it's a historic building, it can't be sustainable. It's like, what yes. are you talking exactly. about? That is absolutely not true. Because um, somehow the the conversation around sustainability has been focusing a little bit more on new construction, solar panels, green technology, and not about the using what's already here. And it's like, mm-hmm. y'all, reduce, reuse, recycle. We, we all heard mm-hmm. that slogan from the 80s and they're in that order for that reason. And like reuse is right there before recycle. Um, so it's just kind of reminding yeah. and um, trying to elevate the fact that reusing an existing building is inherently sustainable. Exactly. And all of the impact so yes, we can still improve the systems, we can still add green technology, but by not having to throw away a building and throw all of that energy mm-hmm. into the landfill for just to sit there, it's, that's a conversation that I keep having yeah. with different people. Right. And uh, that is yeah. actually how we connected on the panel too, is the yep. building I'm sitting in, which lasts in 2021, one of the excellence award, preservation excellence yep. award is specifically because my my partner, Tony, who project managed and single-handedly checked every single (laughs) brick, tin, (laughs) slate, all of it, is that the passion, the commitment was to, and it just so happened the program worked for us. And that's why I think the Preservation League of New York likes us is that we are, well, we won the award because A, the building is beautiful and done Mm -hmm. by incredible local craftsmen, caring people, but also because of our commitment to new creative economies coming to the region as well as our commitment to green energy. So the first thing that was done was cut the fossil fuel line out of the building. Mm-hmm. Um, and Tony, uh, for maybe another podcast for you to consider to super nerd out on his yeah. love. He would speak to so many people who said, oh, it's such a pain and hassle to use that tax credit program. And he'd say, no, the program is designed perfectly. It's it's telling you like if you follow their rules, you'd get the best product, which is throw out as little as possible, keep, preserve everything you can. So in our case, the biggest, one of the, there's so many big projects in this building, (laughs) but um, so it's a 1903 elementary school, Hudson elementary school, and it's gorgeous. And it had been sitting uh, unoccupied since 1950 for a brief moment in the 60s, it was a sweatshop for dresses on the ground floor. So on the gl- amazing ground floor, they knocked all the walls down, which were all the retaining walls, and created a and, and took the grand staircase out. So there was no access to the two top floors for 60 years. So it was interestingly preserved in that every single 10, all the classrooms were intact. 
but destroying the first floor structural walls created a dip. So the first year, the two biggest jobs was jacking up the building and pulling up in the front of the building three to seven inches, depending on where. So the floors were all waves. But then once mm-hmm. that was done, it was inch by inch, floorboard by floorboard, tin ceiling, perfectly redone. But, you know, by just, we trained a lot of basically unemployed, arty, mm-hmm. good with hands people. And that's where we got this idea of a training program is we couldn't, it's really hard to find workers actually upstate New York. And uh, all the contractors are always slammed to their own things. So we project manage the project ourselves, And we are doing that. Um, we're moving forward with the Basilica in our historic, using the same program for that. Because that was a, right now, a seasonal, not all year round factory. The biggest project was the window project. And the first time we met with the Preservation League, Tony's undoubted commitment to, of course, we're keeping old windows. No, I'm not going to get... 122. So we had a window shop for a year in this building and it was just two carpenter guy, like Mm -hmm. old school, great, good with wood, true carpenters taking down, restoring uh, the double hung Mm -hmm. and building storm windows, of course, so that you get the natural, you know, the, the, the seal, but Mm -hmm. that project defines this project. And Tony's like all that window pane, all that wood, and they're beautiful. Yeah. But so we are walking spokespeople of these programs are completely sustainable, green, smart, conscientious. This is not new. Yeah. Anyway, that's yeah. just that's my excitement to share that I will go to bat any day with you to say <laughs> that historic restoration is totally green and in many ways incredibly more rewarding because the spirit of the architect actually it was a it was a colleague of Homestead is that his, the guy the is that his name the guy who um Central Park guy? yeah yeah Homestead it was that era but there was it's an important school architect of the from the U.S. and it's having with the Basilica when we reclaimed that I don't think we ever found out what architect it was or anything but mm-hmm. this building we we worked with the Preservation League first of all and they were so thrilled by our commitment to do it the way we did but this definitely has upped our notch of beyond reclaiming but improving and making like, oh, it's just, it's been incredibly satisfying. I'm admiring it as we speak of just a building that was built with so much original intelligence, like Mm -hmm. the building intelligence, even if you don't know architecture and you walk through the world, the Mm -hmm. eighties was a very weird time of <laughs> shitty construction. <laughs> I mean, look at the design, industrial design, so much stuff was so, but the buildings, I mean, can you believe these buildings that were built over a hundred years ago, how long they stand? Yeah. And it's natural. You know, it's a lot yeah. of it has to do with original technique and original and materials and organic mm-hmm. materials and not, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, and I love the fact that, that you guys found the buildings and actually started restoring them. And that you're bringing the artists to it. Because that's, I think, the biggest piece that I've been kind of fascinated by is going where the artists are. That's typically the, a development thing where it's like up and coming places, you want to go where the artists are going. If, if you mm-hmm. go there and the bankers are there, you're already too late. Like, <laughs> yeah. But if the artists are there, then it's thriving. And so mm-hmm. I love that you found the building. And it's always wild to me that a lot of the, a lot of beautiful 
existing in historic buildings, they're preserved through poverty because there just wasn't money to tear it down. So like when you're saying yes. like the first floor was knocked out and then you can access the top two floors for a couple decades. And so there's lots of stuff still there mm-hmm. because of that. It's always fascinating. That's actually why you have not been to Hudson, right? So when you come to Hudson, I'll yes. walk you walk, because that is the, the magic of this town is that poverty was so extreme here that that is why we are one of the most historic towns in yep. upstate New York is that from 1950 through the 80s, gotcha. nothing was happening. So the entire main street has been preserved by poverty. And I too have sort of, that's been my my oral history about Hudson and about a Canadian falling in love with the history of America and participating in the rebuilding, reclaiming mm-hmm. while unfolding the mystery of what happened how right. did this city just stop how right. did and how was it that the, the fancy wine shop now was a crack mm-hmm. factory just 15 years ago like how did and right. uh but though the the historic preservation um by poverty has been a big theme in our hudson new york experience and i'm, I'm i've never actually thought about what you just said because obviously i've been aware of the moves of artists and gentrification and been aware that in the last 10 years, as we've been slowly fixing things and bringing mm-hmm. artists perform here, that it's been rebuilding around us. Right. And we fell kind of in the crossfire of, oops, uh, we didn't realize that mm-hmm. by bringing weird artists up here, would <laughs> mean they might buy a house next door. And, right. and uh, but what I had not put together and use it with an outside eye is that Tony and I, reclaim the buildings before the arty people were here. And that's comes to a theme that I find myself talking about a lot in the creative economy, which is now yet another industry that people are looking to exploit. But um, we are a rarity in that we are artists that put our art aside for a moment to manifest and de- right. construct something. Mm-hmm. And that we are artists, artists, developers. Tony hates the word artist. He's like, I'm a filmmaker. You're a musician. We're not artists. Because <laughs> music and film are much more utilitarian in that they are A, more accessible and B, they're less precious. You know, the art world is a whole thing that's alive and well in Hudson mm-hmm. and New York around the world. Uh, though the other thing that music and film have are production, like technology, production. In my case, it was like, world tours and right. how do you get you know how do you move equipment from one place and how do you put on a show how do you make a festival yeah tony it's you know very experienced in quite literally building sets and figuring out how to like get a you know rig a thing so you can mm-hmm. get a camera so he, we're well versed for this kind of hands-on development whereas yeah. the average artist I'm no offense to a poet or a painter, or, but you know that they're not usually out there like moving buildings around right. where we we definitely right. are, and I guess that's what put us a made us a good team, but also mm-hmm. how it ended up being that we were deciding to to renovate buildings instead of uh, making movies or music for a moment. I'm so grateful that you did, because <laughs> honestly, you. <laughs> same and like at, like even like exploring the website and seeing the different photos and things that are of the building that's on there. I'm like, this is amazing. Like, You should check out the work if you have not already. She's one of, I think, the most important artists of the 21st century. More Mother from Philadelphia. Okay. She has an amazing project called Black Quantum Futurism. Oh, interesting. She has played Basilica before. This year, we're having her and a few other artists do a two-day set. So they're artists in residence for the weekend, essentially. Mm-hmm. And 
She does a lot of work in Philadelphia with community youth art, super engaged social activist in Philadelphia. And and so it was originally her work in Philly that got me excited to get her to Hudson because Hudson has a segregated population in that Mm -hmm. there's basically weekenders and tourism, and then there's local multi-generational housing projects that were moved from urban areas to these small upstate. So a lot of upstate Mm -hmm. New York has that 19... 70s, what was it called? Uh, like urban, urban development. Yeah, urban yeah. renewal. Yeah. So there's like a whole corner of town which displaced housing projects from the, from the city in Hudson that are the most local there is because a lot of local, more Republican area, er- er- mm-hmm. they, they've moved to the suburb or moved out back to rural. So it's mm-hmm. a very, very mixed demographic in Hudson. And uh, we as an art center, Especially in our new, our next ten year, um, we're embarking on a strategic plan. Of course, the arts is always at the heart of what we believe brings joy and connectivity. Mm-hmm. But there's so much of arts, and at this point, we're truly trying to figure out how we can just be of service to those who have not at all been benefiting whatsoever from the the development of town. And I'd invited more mother to come and work with the local library, see whether she could engage youth in avant-garde art, because this is like you know the exciting. So she's invited as an artist in resident. We're waiting to see if she can come for a few weeks to try to work mm-hmm. with some of the youth programs here. But in our, in our last uh, part of the podcast, like mm-hmm. two areas, we could kind of maybe coast out on mm-hmm. 90s alternative and gender stuff of you know, yeah. where you were at as a girl in the 90s yeah. coming of age. Oh my gosh. Um, yes. That would be cool to end on. But I, I do want to know, and I'm sure I could find some of it on your podcast, but with in 2020, mm-hmm. obviously with broken systems being exposed, Black Lives Matter is hitting the street. How have you felt that you've been able to change the conversation in your workplace. I'm very curious yeah. to give us a scenario of how, yeah. you know, not, not, you know, it's interesting brought up the polite thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a very 1950s sort of like, cause I, you know, actually I've been kind of upset that I feel like the new regime makes people have to be too polite. Like in some ways, like now there's like this weird, everyone's afraid to speak candidly and there's all these words and all these things. So it's so funny. You bring yeah. up the play. Cause I definitely agree that in 1950s, the polite, I'm not racist. Hello neighbor or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like we're also losing a lot of people's ability to be outspoken speaking in the nineties and mm-hmm. people just speaking their truth versus now everyone is afraid, but I would most importantly like to know how you directly changed the yeah. conversation a bit in your workplace. Yeah. So I guess there, there's a few things. So at my company, we have different committees. And so one of the committees I'm on is the Heritage Conservation Studio. And so um, I was very grateful for a coworker who she was supposed to be giving a presentation on modernism. And this was a little bit after George Floyd had already been murdered. But she was like, you know, why don't we actually have a different conversation. And, and so then her and I started talking about, well, what if we talk about race and preservation? What is that like? And so mind you, the the Heritage Conservation Studio at our company, it's like maybe less than 20 people at the firm. And so I was like, yeah, you know, we started talking, I put together some sides and we were going to do a lunch and learn. And I was thinking it was just going to be the studio, but, you know, we always open up the lunch and learns to the whole company. Over a hundred people from the company attended this particular one. And I was like, oh, all right, well, we're going we're gonna to talk about this then. But, but it's one of those things where it's, 
it's exciting and thrilling and petrifying to be able to have these conversations at work, particularly because there is such a, I know for me personally, I've, I've always had a fear of being pigeonholed or stigmatized as being the Black woman who's only talking ab about Black things and being coming across as an angry Black woman, um, which doesn't take much, unfortunately, to be perceived that way. And so it was one of those things where I've always been conscious to make sure I'm talking about data and facts and history and this is what happened and trying to leave my voice and my uh, opinion about it out of it. It's more of like, this is what it was. It, it, it is what it is. And so being able to create the space in a predominantly white firm and you know there's a whole team and a committee and we have uh, amazing other colleagues who are doing great things as well so it's not just me doing this but being able to create the framework to just have the conversation and I was really appreciative of our leadership and even our CEO being like all right you know well the first we need to at least start have, being comfortable about this. So he was like, everyone at the firm, buy an expense, white fragility, and we're going to start there and start being comfortable having that conversation. And it's interesting because white fragility was written by a white woman talking to white people about how to talk about race. And so I know there are some people who were feeling like, oh, well, there are plenty of Black people who are having this conversation and we should center the Black voice. And while I agree with that, I also recognize you have to meet people where they are. And there are a lot of white people who won't listen to anything about it because they're like, well, that's just, oh, that's just a Black person being angry about racism and not realizing that racism isn't a Black thing for white people to pity, but it's a white thing for white people to solve. Because there's nothing I can do or say to anyone who is very racist to make them be less racist. <laughs> but their mm -hmm. family member who has different views and can help them get there has more access, if you will. So anyway, so being able to start that conversation and being able to center it on architecture, because unfortunately, there are a lot of times where there are architects who try to say, well, hey, I just designed the buildings. Architecture isn't a social thing. I'm focused on the buildings, not the people, which is asinine to me. It's like <laughs> architecture is 100% yeah, about people. the people. <laughs> right, exactly. 100%. So just being able to have those conversations and help colleagues and others continue to make space for it and bring it to the forefront. And so um, at our firms, we're seeing Jedi, kind of what the movement's being called. So justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Jedi principles as the kind of where sustainability was 20 years ago. Because particularly in architecture, when sustainability and lead in particular first hit the market, it was always seen as, oh, it's too expensive. No one wants it. It's a, it's a headache, yada, yada. Whereas now sustainability is something that architects inherently do. If it's not good design, if it's not sustainable. So as we're incorporating more Jedi principles and things, we're hoping, or I'm optimistic that within the next 10, hopefully sooner than that, but 10 years, Jedi principles and thinking about people and community and where things are coming from and all that is just inherent to what we do as designers and architects, as opposed to this, oh, well, we don't want to talk about race. We want to be polite about it and all that. Because mm -hmm. one of the things that I find interesting, particularly and uh, now when everyone is, like when you're mentioning people being nervous about speaking their mind, it's like, I think it's, it's more so just more people now have the option to be vocal about how they feel about what people are saying. Because I feel mm -hmm. like sexist, racist, misogynistic comments have always been that. It's just before in the 80s, you know, women, oh, you're at work and someone smacks your ass. You just have to, oh, huh, don't take it personally. Whereas now you can actually say, no, you don't do that. Like you have different, you have different 
power now. And so I think it's less of the issue of not being able to say what you want and more so being held to the consequences of it, particularly when what you're saying is affecting people who historically didn't have the option to say something without Mm -hmm. being lynched or ostracized or whatever. So it's like the fact that so many more people who have been historically excluded are able to actually use social media and other tools to be like, yeah, that was a garbage comment and I'm not going to buy your stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that I think is interesting. Cause like, and so I get a little twitchy when celebrities like, Oh, or cancel culture. And yeah, yeah. All that. I'm like, it's, it's always been here. It's just before it was always old white dudes canceling people <laughs> as opposed yeah. to everybody else. <laughs> yeah. 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 Very good. Well, that's why I guess the writer Right, you know, you weaponizing this cancel culture. They know it well, and they are they know the power of it. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yep. And so the idea of being polite, and so I grew up in a very mixed setting, uh, so I often find myself most comfortable in mixed settings as opposed mm-hmm. to one or the other. Uh, although I am often, particularly in professional settings, one of the few Black people in the room, in the space, whatever. So I have a lot of friends of different races, uh, different ethnicities and religions. And so just being able to have the conversations, and there are plenty of times when I'll be asking friends, like, hey, I'm about to ask you an ignorant question because I just don't know. And I'm not trying to be ignorant, but teach me basically. But then it's like being comfortable with friends to create the space to call someone in as opposed to calling someone out or trying to shame them mm-hmm. and all that. But yeah. then it's also um, holding the line to be like, listen, we all have the Google. So like <laughs> <laughs> you can research this and then we can have a conversation and to process more, but like, I'm not going to teach you something, but I'm happy to have a dialogue. And so one of the things with the podcast that I've been doing is trying to connect more of those dots and just help people see things a little bit differently, mm-hmm. which has been interesting. And so it's been exciting to have these conversations, but then also petrifying mm-hmm. and sometimes exhausting, but that's what breaks yeah. are for. So, <laughs> yes. But I like the, I mean, also because you're so well-spoken and read and you have like an anchor in the world of work that you're doing that Mm -hmm. is both your specialty, but also you're able to, you have a lens of social and justice Mm -hmm. elements. So you have like a a big palette to speak from where, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's very inviting and that it allows you to be very strong and calling in, not out because you have a lot to share. Whereas there's, you know, so that's like, the best case scenario and lucky for anyone who's in your company that you can like share a lot of knowledge that is important to you and, Mm -hmm. and means something to you. Then it's reflected in the way you live your life and the work that you do. That is progress. You know, that is something that, uh, and because you seem very, you're, you have a nice smile and you're eloquent (laughs) and you're, you get it. That's, that's a gift to the world because you can, enlighten people in a in a way that will not feel terrifying you know and i'm not saying that like you know and with this it can segue into the you know i took note here the angry black Mm -hmm. woman and then Mm -hmm. obviously just the historic you know witch culture and like and and i was um you know i was the happy polite canadian but to my left on stage was a woman courtney that essentially was burned at the stake for being way too outspoken, a total victim of the world. She's not, Mm -hmm. she's not a bad person. She was a product of a rape. She was a working stripper. I mean, the the woman did not have an easy time Mm -hmm. coming to be. Mm -hmm. And then when her superstar husband committed suicide, the world blamed her. 
Right. And when a woman, a single mother with, left with child with a drug addiction and mental instability right. is burned at the stake and what I've witnessed during those years of the 90s, um, and it's taken me a good 20 years to step out. And I, in 2018, Basilica honored her as a pioneering person. Mm-hmm. And we had a very, and a reunion after pretty much 20 years of not a lot of contact, but wow. she, um, she is in the best mental, physical, personal health she's uh, been in, in a long time. And it meant a lot to me to honor her, but mainly as a woman to revisit how blind and brutal the nineties were to, I only know from a female perspective, but I obviously always knew Mm -hmm. race poverty. I mean, as I mentioned earlier, I arrived in the U S I couldn't believe what I saw. I just, Mm -hmm. you know, how badly in, 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 unequal people were treated, but that, that segues into the nineties, you know, women and gender. And I feel like every woman has a, a knowledge of what it, what it means to, you know, be catcalled on the street or be considered not able in a man's world and all that. And that's what I spent, you know, spent my professional career trying to make a point about and fatefully bizarrely ended up with Courtney Love, who obviously was had her own, her own version and way of playing with the virgin horror complex and all of the, she's highly intelligent and played with a really interesting gender card, obviously. And I'd, and, and I've always thought, a black woman in America to me seems like you've got both mm-hmm. both sides and in in some ways like a stronger position <laughs> to speak <laughs> out. <laughs> like, like you're in a very good empowered place. If you want right. if you're if you're able to take this moment, which it seems mm-hmm. like you are with your with your platform and the podcast, it's you know, talk about voices you want to hear from. I want to hear from black <laughs> women <laughs> and right. what their perspective growing up was. And, right. uh, and yeah, um, yeah, and I feel like I'd yeah. like to know what you're, you know, coming of age and how obviously you found something in buildings and people mm-hmm. and you found a profession, but describe a bit as a coming of age as a woman, what empowered and helped you find your voice? Yeah. Oh, this is such a fun question. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I was uh, an eighties baby. So in the nineties, I was like, it was like elementary school, middle school, all that. Um, yeah, me too. Ani DeFranco and Fiona Apple were like big staples in my uh, yeah. angsty teenage years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's one of those things where it's interesting because I didn't have that many black friends who were like, Ani, who, what are you talking about? So yeah. it was kind of like the, the alternative music scene and being able to have that voice and recognizing that I don't have to be the person that society tells me I should be. So it's kind of like that alternative music scene coupled then also with the R&B music and kind of at the time it was still Fresh Prince, Cosby Show, Different World, all of those. And so like the ideas of being an educated Black person and not conforming to society and recognizing that we have more options than just being a statistic, basically. And so, so like high school, I was... I was in everything. And when I say that, I mean, like, I was a jock. So I was a four-year triathlete, played sports. I was in the marching band. I was in student government. Mm-hmm. I had friends of all the different groups because I I always felt very tall and awkward and other. So I just kind of felt like I, I would fit in where I could because I was like, mm, I'm, I'm awkward. So I'm just going to hang out with people. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that was kind of what it was. Um, and, and actually, because my high school was so diverse, I had such a diverse group of friends. I very naively thought that racism and the civil rights movement 
it was over. Everything was equal. Everything was great. Got to college. I was like, oh, sure, shit. <laughs> Black people are still mm-hmm. treated differently. So it was kind of like that uh, awakening and being like, oh, this is still a thing. Even though we learned about this in history class, it's not mm-hmm. done yet. And it's still not done. It's I don't know that it ever will be, but it's still realizing and negotiating being a Black woman, what that means just in private, what that means in public, what that means in corporate America, what that means and how that changes based on who I'm around as a way to survive. So that's been interesting. Mm-hmm. But like the 90s, I'm, I do remember like feeling, I don't know, the 90s felt very possible. Like there's lots of possibility. possibility like I everything agree. was changing. Like yeah, even going, yes, hopeful. Right? Even going from like the the CD to like the MP3. So like even just, I know the digital change that is somewhat petrifying or can be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know you mentioned that, but it's the, I don't, everything just felt like it was changing and it seemed like progress was happening. I know. Yeah. I know. I feel the same, you know, in terms of that's why when I did the tribute to Courtney in 2018 and I reflected like the height of 1998, which is mm-hmm. when whole, when we put out our last record and did our last world tour and, we were some of the only women like yeah. on the, Oh, it was such an exciting, we felt like we had achieved so much in just five years. Mm-hmm. And in reflecting that era, I actually wasn't aware because I was much more in the alter- alternative music scene, but mm-hmm. someone had pointed out that the mainstream media uh, was like Oprah, Madonna. It was such a power woman time. Right. And yes, of course, it was definitely like the 60s revolution. My my mother, who was a definite frontline feminist who raised me mm-hmm. so clearly a feminist and not, you know, I so I too naively kind of thought that it was mm-hmm. done over, mm-hmm. we've made it. And I really felt like the 90s had sort of completed that. And I, yeah. I'm and it's, I feel like the women's movement is an important moment for me personally. I'm trying to figure out how to weave it into some of the work I'm doing. I mean, I mentioned earlier too that I am writing a memoir right now and I really want to hone in because I think there's a lesson to learn from the women's movement for the social movements happening right now is that I don't feel like it, like you said about racism, I don't feel like it's over. I mean, it's not globally. We right. understand what's happening to women. I mean, this right. is maybe in our privileged society, it's getting better, but I am very scared of the uh, unintentional consequences of of progress of we have not finished. I mean, domestic violence, Mm -hmm. regardless of color is so alive and well in this part of the world. And I I feel very concerned very often that the women's movement is not being, it's been sort of put aside with this illusion in a pop culture way, Oprah Mm -hmm. Winfrey, uh, Madonna, whoever these big, my least favorite was that horrible moment of sex in the city. I thought like, this is the worst female role models ever. Can you please erase that from the nineties? Cause that is not empowerment. That is not what I want young women growing up thinking they should be, that is not, but no offense to whoever those people were who created it, but that there was like a bit of an illusion of like this powerhouse corporate woman thing, mm-hmm. which was definitely not my intent. My intention was like, emotional, soulful, deep, like healing, like power, goddess power coming Mm -hmm. out and changing systems in that you come into a system and you start looking from different angles and you write things in different ways and you shed a light that is different from the male perspective that has been there forever. And that other thing that you mentioned, I felt too, 
uh, as a white, white redheaded person, I was always the only redhead in the room, which is different, of course, in my skin color, although the white of my skin was so white <laughs> that it was embarrassing. I mean, it was truly like, you know, I burned, turned pink, you know, I freckles everywhere. And my daughter has the same thing and she does not want her white skin and her red hair. You know, she, all of her drawings are dark skin, dark hair, beautiful right. <laughs> women in her mind. This, you know, this makes us different. But that mm-hmm. other component that is so crucial to evolution and change and bringing in these new, basically it's uh, it's uncovering the, the shadow side, uncovering the hidden parts. You know, that's what is the healing and the progress can come from. And I do get a bit nervous about parts of the, the movement in the moments now The good news is the platforms and the intellectual capabilities to Mm -hmm. share knowledge. The bad part is the social media. Everyone can say anything they want. Uh, You know, that's good. It's good and bad. It's the flip Mm -hmm. side. But it's this more kind of black and white. I feel like we're missing some of the gray shadow sides of like the hidden things that Mm -hmm. we must always. I've, I've been really digging science lately and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And one of the main things he talks about, my daughter has been super into it and been like staring at the sky and like, that is the answer. Like, yes, the big, the unknown is what we must always acknowledge and hum- be humbled by. But what, what I really liked what you said about the facts, if you walk into a room and you don't want to be the angry black woman, but you are here are facts so, and that's like, what's exciting about science is science has facts that you can share that can mm-hmm. lead to education. But one of the cool things in, in what I've been hearing in reoccurring science shows is to always question. You must right. always question because there is something we don't know. Right. And that to me, I feel like is the key to social progress too, is that in wanting to you know, understand all there's so much we don't know about other people's lives and about other people's experiences. And obviously in the nineties, that's what I, the most, the, one of the biggest injustice I witnessed was Courtney being burned at the stake, but nobody knew, you know, do you now it matters. And, but you know, she's a fourth generation motherless daughter when a, when a child does not have a daughter. And I know that in many different class, you know, there's a lot of absent fathers and, and missing mothers and missing fathers is a very important wound to acknowledge in mm-hmm. the, the development of human beings and yeah. just like lead paint. I feel like there was a change when the 90s sort of ended and a lot of it came with, and maybe that's sort of my stigma with the digital is that something was forgotten in like a, a, a kind of shared human feeling of progress where you are in those concerts together or you're, you know, finding your peer in that little alternative scene. And it's not through a digital medium. It's through a found person in the flesh that makes you feel not alone and that you're like finding yourself and finding change. And I'm not, you know, demonizing digital entirely, but there is like a lost human connection, which as we know, COVID helped expand. <laughs> yep. And there were here we are in the aftermath, like 20 years after the 90s, creation of digitization explosion enhanced by COVID. Mm-hmm. And back to sort of like what you we connected on being music fans or mm-hmm. wanting art and music to participate in the in the connecting of of, of people so that we can make a, a better world right. or a better building. 
we are in a very vulnerable place of human connection right now. And it's not just the uh, COVID, of course, it's really the digital mixed with a lost sort of innocent era that you and I grew up in where we felt like things were going like this. And in the two thousands between the multiple wars and horrendous divisive presidents it's been hard to keep like the kind of spirit of that progress. It feels like it's been a lot of up, down. And where do you think we are now? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where are we in the flow of up and down and progress? Because I'm glad we shared that in our youth. Yeah. I felt the same way too. I grew up in an urban inner city, Mm -hmm. multi-ethnic, like just multi-class. Like I did not realize until I moved to the U S and then really till I moved to Hudson, New York, because when you're in L.A. and New York and mm-hmm. traveling the world, you don't feel. But when you move to a smaller city in the U.S., yeah, wow, do you feel yeah. not progress? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And like, and it's interesting because growing up, also I went to a summer camp in Orson, Pennsylvania in the Poconos. So that was like my, my moment of pause every year to be like, oh, the world does kind of stop sometimes. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. different town, different city. But I'm hoping cautiously optimistic that we are on the upward swing of progress after coming off of a plateau, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And so I'm hoping that like, I'll take a quick step back. (laughs) I remember when I was younger, I thought that adults knew more than we actually do. The fact that we are all out here just winging it, making it up as we go, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like everyone's winging it, right? And so I feel like Hopefully, the people who are the decision makers currently, they are more willing to create systems that are just and to dismantle systems that are unjust and to acknowledge that things can be better. Yeah, It's one of those things where it's kind of like, if design is the issue, then design could potentially be the problem or could potentially be the solution as well. So I guess I'm, I'm hoping that we are about to see a fantastic couple mm-hmm. decades of progress that will uh, create a more just world for everyone of all races and genders. But I also recognize that the same way there's those of us who want that, there are plenty of people who don't want that. And it's yeah. not that they are ignorant, it's more so that they are determined. And so it's kind of making sure that we are up to the challenge and not confusing ignorance with determination. Or uh, same way some people will be like, oh, right. that past president, he's just crazy. No, no, he's not crazy. He knows exactly what he's doing. You re- right. Yeah. You yeah. respond to crazy and intentional very differently. So just making sure that we are paying attention as decisions are being made going forward. So hopefully optimism will prevail. But I agree with you that I do kind of also feel that we are at a vulnerable point where things could swing either way. Yeah. And there's the question of climate, of course, mm-hmm. as well, is that, you know, the those who are determined to ignore yeah. racial inequality are determined to ignore the right. planetary um, abuse and uh, the quite literally mining of and destroying our planet. And yeah, that's yeah, that's the I mean, I feel like obviously we've just been on this trajectory for a long time, way before you and I were born. And mm-hmm. and we are watching these kinds of uh, ceilings being hit is the you know on the right. timelines uh, right. and when it comes to you know even just the population living in poverty and inequity mm-hmm. in this country how right. unmanageable is that in yeah. the 1950s when certain systems were connected built you know like I agree 
the systems I think have a chance to be reviewed and rebuilt. And I think that the youth of today, other than those who are being indoctrined into denial, of course, right. and right. have incredible opportunity to build more just systems mm-hmm. and, um, and acknowledge that they were wrongly built in the past. Right. They were built for mm-hmm. bad intention with bad intentions. Mm-hmm. It's now a matter of time and manageability of like, and that's actually often what even before I understood this, because the climate clock wasn't as it was clear to me 20 years ago, but it's become you know increasingly right. more clear. Right. Is that what attracts me to a city of the size of Hudson? Is I'm always talking about the manageability size that if you mm-hmm. can unite, engage, and review the infrastructure of one little city, mm-hmm. it can be a beacon of hope for bigger cities or other places. But it really is that it comes down to that local question of can you locally make right. improvements right next door while engaging and hope and voting for national you know level changes of course but right. it's the manageability and the timeline that that obviously gets people nervous but i think i agree with you that there is incredible hope in transcendent sort of awareness of the wrongs of the past and mm-hmm. uh it, but then it's the precarious vulnerability of the humans that are right uh, in charge of moving. Um, and it's not only those in power, it's the ones that have been left behind who are brainwashed by those in power, you know? So it's like a, it's, it's hard to, (laughs) to change all, all of those levels, even though you and I would love to try to (laughs) have one big (laughs) incorporated system where we could, uh, access everybody (laughs) through all of these different podcasts and conversations and and all these good intentions. (laughs) Right. Exactly. But goodness. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I guess this is what's exciting for our problem-solving style people and brains is that we can be ambitious in our realistic scale. Like you and I on our scale can try in our network and in our work that we do, do that. And I've definitely been, I don't know how on some of your projects, but partnerships in different fields of expertise has been the exciting thing for me in the future. Basilica is trying to figure out how education and Mm -hmm. land conservancy and arts and culture can work together for a cool regional system to inform and and inspire and repair things. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. And I I love the idea of making those connections because ultimately that's really the only way that we're going to make bigger change because I think yeah. for so often, particularly architects, we have a really bad habit of just talking to other architects and being yeah. like, oh, wh- why is it more, th- why is it more change happening? Well, <laughs> we got to go talk to different people. I that I didn't ask you enough architect questions, A, because I uh, <laughs> asked my brother to listen to it, but I feel like we did not nerd out enough about architecture and no maybe, <laughs> maybe we have to have another one. Um, we might have to. Maybe when, <laughs> if panels and things get back into person, we can invite you up to Hudson to- That'd be awesome. Talk about these things with a group of people and yeah. in person. It would be wonderful. I agree. Um, I'm really excited. I really am inspired to, to meet a person like you who found your way through architecture with all of these uh, race, gender, and social mm-hmm. um, heartbeats behind it. It's really exciting. And yeah. I wish you the best of work. And um, I'm happy for your region that you're working in it and for your company that you're having <laughs> luncheons and uh, talking about hard things. And 
yeah. politely educating people. It's very yeah. good. You're doing, <laughs> um, you're, you're, sounds like you're maximizing your lunch hours. <laughs> Seeing what I can do. Yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for that. And I'm super excited to be able to connect with you and thank you for the fact that, okay. So one, I got to talk to a legit rock star today. My gosh, that's so cool. Um, two, <laughs> the fact that you're bringing more awareness to sustainable preservation and people and community building and like kind of using that world of like music connection to the masses and connecting that to actual hard real estate construction, historic buildings. That's so amazing. That's so amazing. Thank you. So thank you for doing the work you're doing too. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects, you got anything, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.